Morning, everyone. Reading from 1 Samuel 16, the whole of the chapter. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. And when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled. When they met him, they asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So we asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendants said to him, See, an evil spirit from the Lord has torment, is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the liar. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, Find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the liar. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messages to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armour-bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the Spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, we're going to look at that second Bible reading now from 1 Samuel. 
You might have noticed that we've started a new non-sermon Bible reading series in the Gospel of Luke. Next term, in kind of mid-July, we're going to be uh, preaching through the beginning of Luke's Gospel. But right now, we're jumping back into the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, starting at chapter 16, which we've just read then. If you were here last year, then you may remember that we started the book of 1 Samuel then, which is the story really of the rise of the kings of Israel, uh, overseen by God's prophet Samuel. And so we're jumping back in now at chapter 16, and there will be a chance for questions uh, later on. So if any questions come up on the way through, either from the passage or from something that I say, then kind of make a note of those and you can ask them later on. But let's pray as we come again to reflect on God's word together. Heavenly Father, we do ask that uh, your spirit will be with us uh, to give us ears and hearts of faith, to trust that what you have to say to us is good and to want to live in accordance with it. With it, And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Those words from the Lord's Prayer are pretty familiar to many of us. And even a lot of people who never set foot inside a church can usually manage to mumble their way through at least that part of the Lord's Prayer. Even just this week, actually, I was walking past a shop window and it had a poster in it and the title of the poster was Your Will Be Done. And so I stopped to have a look at what kind of poster this was. Maybe this was a Christian poster in the window. But no, it turns out it was an ad advertising to write your will for you. <laughs> your will be done, is what it was saying. And it was, you know, that was a catchy way to grab your attention and it certainly grabbed mine. They're familiar words even if often we don't really know what it is that we're asking for when we pray them. But I want to suggest that those words of the Lord's Prayer help to point us to the heart of God and what God wants on earth, what God's will is for our world. And that, I think, is something that we particularly need to hear when we look around at our world and it is not the way that we want it to be. It is not how we long for our world to be. So that's where we're heading. But even as we begin, we can at least recognise that those words in the Lord's Prayer are about the kingdom of God. Your kingdom come, we pray. And as we step back into the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament, we are coming to a significant turning point in the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. 1 Samuel, as I said, is about the rise of the kings of Israel. And so if you step back with me in your mind, we're talking about 1000 BC, so 3000 years ago, after the time of Moses and the famous exodus from Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea and the Ten Commandments on the mountain, Mount Sinai, after that time, and the people of Israel have been in the land of Canaan now for several hundred years. And up until this point in the land of Canaan, God has been ruling over his people via judges and prophets. But from this point, God begins to rule over his people through kings. And 1 Samuel shows us the beginning of that story. Now, the story of the rise of the kings of Israel is not necessarily a good story. It didn't start well and it's marked with problems throughout. But it is significant 
in the story of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. And this passage in particular really does, as I said, mark a significant turning point in the nature of that kingdom. And what it does, I think, for us is it begins to raise for us the question, what kind of kingdom does God want? And so what is it that we pray for and that we look forward to when we pray your kingdom come? Well, the events of this chapter, I think, help us to understand what that is and help us to pray for and to look forward to it in a way that gives us kind of greater clarity and conviction about what we're looking forward to. And it does that by showing us the kind of king that God wants. And the key verse, really, that we're going to come to later is verse 7, where God says, The Lord does not look at the things that people look at, People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, we're going to come to that later, but when we do, I'm going to suggest that there is even more to that verse than might seem at first. So that's where we're heading. Let's jump into it from the beginning. And it begins really where we left off last year when we finished at the end of chapter 15 with the king that God rejected. That is King Saul. Have a look at the first half of verse 1 with me. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? As I said, this passage does begin with a turning point in the kingship of Israel, with God decisively rejecting the king that we have been following through the book of 1 Samuel up to this point, King Saul. Now, if there was a People's Choice Award for king, Saul would have won it. He was exactly the king that the people wanted. He was tall and strapping. He was a kingly-looking guy. That's what we're told about him. He was literally a head taller than everyone else, and he became a successful military leader. But he was the king that the people should not have asked for. God made it very clear when they asked for this king that they were rejecting God when they asked for him, not trusting that God would provide what they wanted when they needed it. What they wanted instead was the security that they saw in the monarchies, the kingdoms of the nations around them, the political stability and particularly in battle, someone to lead them into battle. And Saul was the guy that God gave them when they asked for that kind of king. And he was exactly what they wanted. And we heard that God was willing to get behind Saul as king. But I guess you could say that was a concession that God had made for them. God saw the request for what it was, that it was a rejection of him, but he was still gracious enough to give it to them anyway. And when we were looking at this last year, we saw that God is able to carry out his plans, his will, even through our bad choices. And the encouragement that that can be, that even our bad choices can't actually mess up God's will for the world and our lives. But he also warned them at the time that this wasn't going to go well for them. And sometimes God does that too. Sometimes he gives people what we want as a judgment for rejecting the good things that he wants for us. 
That's what we heard last time. As I said, God was willing to give them Saul as king. But when he did that, when he made Saul king, he also made promises to the king and the people that if king and people together trust him and obey him, then things will go well for them. This will be a good thing. But if not, he will be against them. And sadly, what we've seen is that it turned out to be the second of those two options. Saul was the king who didn't trust God when things got hard. And so he disobeyed God in those crucial moments. And the prophet Samuel had the task of delivering the crushing news to Saul. If you look just up in the passage, from the passage that we've read in chapter 15, verse 28, he says this, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbours, to one better than you. That's the king that God rejected, given every opportunity, but he refused to trust God. Now that's got us to halfway through the first verse. We're going to move a little bit more quickly from now on as the focus shifts to the king that God has chosen. And let me read now the second half of verse 1. God said to Samuel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Now, for many of us with kind of maybe Christmas ideas ringing in our ears, a son of Jesse in the town of Bethlehem will kind of prick up our ears and raise our interest. But to begin with, we don't even know who this son of Jesse is. And it turns out he has quite a lot of sons, eight of them, in fact. And many of his sons seem to be exactly the kind of candidate that Samuel expected that God would choose to be the next king, the oldest in particular. Have a look at what Samuel says to himself when he first lays eyes on Jesse's son, Eliab. It's in verse 6 there. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. According to the criteria that they had used for King Saul, Eliab seemed like the perfect candidate. His physical appearance gave off all the king-type vibes. Just like King Saul, he was tall and kingly-looking, But God says about Eliab exactly the same thing that he said about Saul. I have rejected him. This is not the king of my choosing. And this is where we get to that crucial verse, verse 7. Let me read verse 7 for us. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. God doesn't look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And even at at its most basic level, consider how significant and how good that is, that God looks at the heart, not just on the externals. And we know that it's what's on the inside that counts, right? I mean, that idea comes to us from the very lips of Jesus himself. We also know that you can't judge a book by its cover. But we do because that's all we can see. We can only see what's on the outside of people. 
But that's not true of God. God can see to the very heart, and that is what God cares about. Just this week, I was reading in Luke chapter 12 about how God hates hypocrisy and that one day everything that is hidden will be made clear and revealed, that God sees to the heart of every single one of us. And so as much as we might say that we care about what's on the inside, we still make decisions by what we see on the outside because our perspective is limited. How good is it that God is not limited in that same way? That nobody can kind of pull the wool over God's eyes and fool him with flashy and external things that impress other people? That is not what impresses God because God sees the heart. And that should be, I think, an encouragement, but also a warning to each one of us. But I want to suggest that there's actually more going on in this verse than might first appear. See, the exact wording of verse 7 leaves it kind of ambiguous about whose heart God is talking about. Is he talking about the heart of the potential king that God sees? Or is he talking about God's own heart? that God sees according to God's heart. He chooses from his own heart. I want to suggest that it's probably both. Turn with me, if you've got your Bibles there, back to chapter 13, verse 14, and have a listen to what Samuel says when he's rebuking Saul for his disobedience. He says this, But now your kingdom will not endure, The Lord has sought a man after his own heart and appointed him as leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. See, God is choosing a new king in line with God's own heart, unlike Saul, whose heart was in rebellion against God. So what I'm saying is that this is talking about more than just God's spiritual x-ray vision, you could say. Years ago, I found myself in hospital and getting some kind of a scan on my chest. I'm not really sure what it was, to be honest, but I remember seeing on a screen a real-time kind of video footage of what was going on inside my chest. I could see my lungs. I could even see my own heart beating. What I'm saying is that this is more than just the spiritual version of that, that God can see into our hearts, which is true, But also it seems to be saying that God will choose this king with his own heart, from his own heart. That unlike Saul, this will be a choice that comes from the heart of God. And so, one by one, seven of Jesse's sons pass before Samuel. And one by one, Samuel says, the Lord has not chosen these But as we read on, it turns out there was one more son of Jesse, one that seemed to have been all but forgotten, the youngest, who was not even considered amongst adult company when grown-ups are doing their grown-up things, he was forgotten about, off tending the sheep somewhere. But Samuel calls for him. In fact, he calls a halt to the feast until he has arrived. And eventually this youngest son arrives, and when he does, we're told about his appearance which perhaps is a little ironic given we've just been told that God doesn't look at the outward appearance. We're told that he's good-looking and glowing with health. He's bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, you could say. 
but not impressive in stature like his brothers were, not kingly, he was just a youth. But this is the one who God sees from his heart and to the heart and who God chooses. And so God says to Samuel in verse 12, rise and anoint him. This is the one. And verse 13, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him. Now, incidentally, anointed here is the word that we get the word Messiah from. Samuel messiahed this person, this boy. And so from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. This is the first time we hear mention of the name David, but it is certainly not the last And this is where the outcome for David was so different to Saul. There is one crucial phrase in that sentence about the spirit coming on David that is different to Saul. See, Saul also had the spirit of God come on him in power. But as we're about to hear in verse 14, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. But it never did from David. The spirit was with David from that time onwards. And not just for the rest of David's lifetime, but God even made an eternal covenant with David to be with his descendants even forever. Because this was a choice that had come from the heart of God. Later on in David's life, when David is reflecting on this promise that God gave to David to be with his descendants forever in in 2 Samuel chapter 7, He says, you have made this promise according to your heart. See, God was promising a future of his kingdom that was in line with God's own heart. And it began with choosing a king after his own heart. And that really, it's in that distinction between Saul and David that we see, I think, a, a remarkable and significant aspect of how to understand God's will on earth and how God rules the world now. See, Saul, as I said, was the people's choice of king, who God was willing to give them out of graciousness to them and with certain conditions and with warnings that that it won't go well for them. That was God carrying out his sovereign will over disobedient people. And as we've seen, it was messy. And, you know, it has been that way ever since Adam and Eve, when humanity decided to reject God's will and said, we want to know both good and evil. God gave us what we wanted. He didn't give up his control over the world. Instead, he now carries out his will in a world where there is both blessing and curse. And the final part of our chapter is a perfect example of that. In verse 14, because of Saul's disobedience, it says, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, people will have real trouble with this idea, the idea that God would send an evil spirit. Now, evil here is probably better translated as harmful or bad rather than morally evil. And it's not entirely specific about whether it's talking about 
a, a supernatural spiritual being that God sent or just a bad mood that God sent onto Saul, but because there are examples of, of both of those in the Bible using the same language. But the point is that this was bad and it was from God. And so also was the blessing that God sent to Saul by providing David to soothe his, his bad spirit with the music. And that combination really is how it is right now in the world. God rules over a world where there is both good and evil. None of it is outside of his control. All of, us, all of it is within his will. But not all of it is in line with his heart. So the war in Ukraine, that is under God's control. The actions of Vladimir Putin are under God's control. God's will is being done. But that is not what God loves. That is not what God's heart loves. You know, the book of Job even tells us that even Satan is under, operates under the jurisdiction of God. That Satan can't do anything without God's say-so. So even what Satan does is within the will of God. And yet Satan is the enemy of God. But what we're seeing here in, in this chapter of 1 Samuel and with the anointing of David, a man after God's own heart, is that God was moving towards a king and a kingdom that is in line with his heart so that God's will will be done in a way that God loves. And David was a king who trusted and obeyed God. But he wasn't perfect. You know, we know that he had his failures. And the promise that God made to David about his descendants, that promise about a future kingdom that was in line with God's heart, that promise was pointing to another descendant of Jesse, born in the town of Bethlehem, the child Jesus, who would grow up to be the king whose heart is always and perfectly in line with God's own heart, his father. When Jesus was anointed at his baptism by the Holy Spirit, God said, this is my son, with him I am well pleased. Everything that Jesus did was in line with the heart of his father. And God has now raised that Jesus to life, to be the eternal ruler of his eternal kingdom. And that is what we needed. For God's kingdom on earth to be ruled according to the heart of God, we needed a king who was God in the flesh, God himself, the man Jesus. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, we're praying for the return of Jesus to establish his kingdom on earth and his will on earth in the way that it is in heaven, that is perfectly in line with the heart of God, where God will exercise his good will without the presence of evil to spoil it, with only the good. That's what we're praying for. That's what we are looking forward to. And so can I say that when we pray that prayer, and as you pray that prayer, you should long for your own heart to be like that too. If you long to see the love and forgiveness, the peace and restoration, the absence from evil that will come when Jesus returns, 
then ask God to do that work in your heart now. Ask him to be changing you to be the kind of person who will fit into that kind of kingdom by his spirit so that you can start living a glimpse of that kingdom that will come when Jesus returns. Let's pray that we will. Heavenly Father, we know that this world is not all good and we grieve that. And Father, we know that you grieve it too. And so, Father, we ask that your kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven, that you will send your son and set this world to right. And we also pray that you'll be working by your spirit in each one of us to transform us into the likeness of your son, whose heart is perfectly in line with yours, that we will be a a beginning glimpse of that kingdom that you'll bring when he returns. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.